All right, bradcooney.com. I'd like to welcome in, actually welcome back to the show, uh, Dr. Michael Denon, who is a professor of physics and astronomy at UC Irvine. Mr. Michael Denon, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me back. It's always fun to repeat on something. Absolutely, man. We'd like to have... Uh, We'd like to have you on board. I mean, the first time me and you talked, the interview did very well. A lot, a lot of positive feedback. Um, so I'd love to have you on. All right, so you got a couple things cooking here. Um, first and foremost, you have a new series out called Fascinating Fights. Um, so I guess um, just just kind of tell the listeners what that's all about. I've watched a few of them and, and then just really love them. Um, so just talk about that a little bit. What, what, what's that all about? Sure. So as you know, and we talked last time, one of the things I love to do is the physics and the science of superheroes, supervillains, all sorts of other characters. And I was approached to be the science expert on basically matchups between various characters and personalities. And we would take, you know, five to ten minutes and in that time trying to determine who would win a fight. Um, and my perspective is usually based on their the science and the quality of their scientific abilities or lack thereof. Um, sometimes, you know, I have to admit, I let my own personal judgment intervene, <laughs> and I use outside factors to pick the winner. Um, we we are five episodes have aired on YouTube. Um, we did Spider-Man versus Batman to open a classic battle, and my daughter's still mad at me for who I picked. I won't tell you who it was. <laughs> So the Optimus vs. Voltron, which and I also like. Optimus vs. Voltron, for me, that was a big flashback because I was a big Voltron like fan as a kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was definitely a good one. Um, I, I liked, I liked how it's, it's a fiction um, mixed with nonfiction. Um, you know that 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 little angle right there. Um, no, I think that's a fun piece of it because you get to have fun, and you can bring in a lot of different physics and science because their powers go all over the place. So it allows me to be creative with what science I want to talk about. Now, obviously, in five to ten minutes, you're not going to get a really deep science lesson. Right. No, of course not. All right, so whose idea? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Doc. Oh, yeah. No, but I was just going to say, but it does give you some things to go look up later on, on Google or Wikipedia to find more about. Right. True, true. Okay, so whose idea was this, and how long did it, get, did it take to get it launched? So it was, it was actually this guy, Daniel Glenn. Um, he started it. We actually had a version that we tried once about a little over a year ago where we did a full hour episode of one to two minute battles. And that, it was really fun to film. It's really challenging to, you know, do a battle in just like maybe two to three minutes. Um, and watching for an hour kind of a YouTube thing is obviously hard for people to do. And that was where we really morphed it into this. We're going to do it as, you know, eight to nine minute episodes take a little time on the battle and then, you know, break them up and release them at, you know, once a week. So they come out pretty much on Mondays. Okay, now also, when, oh, you said Monday, so we know when. Where can the fans, can the listeners that listen to this podcast check it out? So one good way to do it is actually 
actually first go to my Facebook page, Prof. Denon Michael. Okay. Turns out there's another Professor Michael Denon out there, so I had to put my last name first. Ah, okay. So it's Prof. Denon Michael, and I have all the links to the episodes as they come out. Now, you can also go pretty straight um, to the, I'm trying to remember the, the, the exact YouTube channel link's a little weird, but if you just Google Fascinating Fights, episode one, two, three, four, whatever you want to watch, it takes you right there as the top link. Okay, cool. Um, has somebody uh, sent me a question on Facebook that they wanted me to ask you um, about the series. He, sure. he, he wanted to know if you, if you think that maybe the, um, the two combatants that, that are debated, um, if that maybe will cross over from Marvel Comics type things to horror characters like Jason versus Michael Myers or something like that. Well, we are planning the second season right now. So a good thing to do if someone wants to see a particular matchup, they can post that on my Facebook page or go to Dan Glenn's page and post it to him. Um, we do have coming up in this sequence, so we're really willing to go outside of the normal superhero universe. If you stick with the season, you get to see the original Sesame Street Muppets battle the current Muppets. <laughs> and, um, well, oh, no, I'm, I'm trying to blank. This is embarrassing. It's a, it's a video game town that, um, you know, basically people get stuck in and lose their mind. We actually do a battle of the town against a person. Oh, wow. Pretty interesting. So, we're willing to get creative with some of these. Where would you like to see this project a year from now? I mean, do you guys have you know aspirations to take this thing onto network TV, or I mean, what, what, what's the what's the plan there? Well, obviously, it would be cool to be on network TV, but right. I think also just you know, there's so much more now. It's just um, actually just YouTube Shorts as you know functional mm -hmm. series and, and content. Um, I know we, we we've heard rumors that Verizon is looking to do similar sort of short content that streams straight to phones, mm -hmm. um, and even just you know say maybe a Netflix thing. Because I think one thing that works well about this is kind of the short, impactful kind of length of it. Mm -hmm. um, I agree. What we'd really like to work back in, if you notice, if you watch it, we do do a. a when we film the series, we film a bunch of episodes at one time, and we actually stream that live during the filming. Right, because people, people can vote in. And people can vote in on the Internet. Right. I think one thing that would be nice to maybe tweak the technology where you have the live voting the first time, but when we do the episodes, actually have it be... We don't display the ending at first. You know, at that point, you get another chance to vote. Oh, okay, um, yeah. And then, you know, and then we can tack on, well, what was the vote the first time? What was our, you know, decision? And then what's the Internet voting the second time around? Good idea. Because for me, the fun part is trying to convince people watching to change their mind. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, what about a Twitter account? Does Fascinating Fights have a Twitter account people can follow? Um, Fascinating Fights is not yet. I do. That's just, oh, I always forget. That's just Den and Michael. Okay. And and Dan Glenn has one as well. You can just um, fascinating nouns. I think is what you look up for that. Now now you know I forgot her name and then I'm embarrassed now. The 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 the, uh, the gal that's also on the panel with you, the WWE um, announcer. What was her name? Right, um, Lauren Mayhew. Right now, how 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 did she get involved? Is this because of her UFC background? Yeah, pretty much. So what happened was interesting. Was you know. Dan 
James Bond was trying to find someone who could bring another aspect to it that was, you know, going beyond just the science and so mm-hmm. kind of matched the two of us up. Um, in the first version, we had kind of a more comic book hero person. Um, he thought kind of being the fat fight angle. She also does the post show for the Flash series. Oh, cool. So she has that kind of superhero connection. Yeah. She has a really good, I like her delivery too, she's good. She does a good no, job. She's very good. She's very used to being on the camera. So she actually figured out sooner than I did that you could look at the camera and talk to it. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, so, so what about this book you got coming out, man? Tell, tell the listeners about your new book coming up. Right, so this is an interesting project. Um, and one of the funny things is how these things change as they morph. So I do, obviously, the science outreach. I do it a lot with superheroes. But I also do a lot of science and religion um, outreach. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it was proposed to me to, oh, why don't you write a book, God is the Ultimate Superhero, and kind of combine the two. So I did that. Uh, the problem was when the book was finished, it, there wasn't a whole lot of superhero stuff in it, but it was a lot of good religion and science discussion. And so, it, and actually, I had thought I'd have to self-publish it, but it got picked up by a publisher. Oh, wow, that's great. So, so Franciscan Media is going to come out with it. It's scheduled to come out October 1st. I know it's a little bit of but it, it seems to be right on track. The new title is Divine Science, Finding Reason at the Heart of Faith. Now, and, yeah. the book will be a, a fiction or nonfiction book? So it's a nonfiction book. Okay. Um, it really is, um, the, the idea is kind of, there's a lot of books out there that try and either prove or disprove God's existence. Mm-hmm which I kind of find, you know, not a particularly interesting th- discussion because what my view is when you look detailed at those arguments, basically you conclude whatever you started with as your assumption. Yeah, right. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah. So this book says, let's assume God exists and, and just start from that assumption. What is the impact of science on that and what we might think about God, how we might believe? And I take it, it's unabashedly kind of a Christian, Judeo-Christian viewpoint. Um, that's my background. I'm Catholic, so, you know, that's what I'm most comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's really, I think it's intended, I think anyone um, would be happy reading it. Um, but it's really a science kind of for the general public. The goal is that you learn science while reading it, but that you also understand why science doesn't necessarily contradict faith. Right. Um, and so that's kind of the take. And I think because it's not meant as an argument for a particular position, it'll. I think it'll be a refreshing point of view for people. Yeah, I do too. And I, and I remember asking you, when I had you on on the show the first time, I asked you if God and science can coexist, and you said yes. Um, exactly. Right, right, and I think that will spark a lot of interest for this read, just just yeah. because I think even atheists and Christians both want to dig more into that. I think so, and I think unfortunately the two voices that get the most press, interestingly enough, are the Christians who think their faith is incompatible with science. And the scientists who think science is incompatible with faith. Mm-hmm. So no matter which side of that position you're on, the conclusion is the same. Science and faith are incompatible. Yeah, exactly. And, and so that's what people hear. What they don't hear, I think, is that vast middle of there are, I think, people who are atheists because that's the conclusion they came to. 
but they don't inherently think that because there's a contradiction between science and faith. Yeah. And I think, I, I don't think, I know, because I know many of them personally, myself included, there are many, many Christians and people of many denominations who understand how science integrates nicely with their faith. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I get into these, these back and forth debates with, with people a lot, and I, I'm... I don't know what I'm called because I believe in God, but I'm not so much sold on a lot of you know some of the some of the scriptures. Um, but a creator of intelligence, a massive intelligence, I do believe in. Uh, and and one of the things that I try to my angle is like when you look at the human genome, um, isn't that awful complex and fine tuned to be just some kind of a random fluke? I mean, it looks to me it is. Let's, let's do a simple one to ten. One, right. there's no God. Ten, there's a God. Where, 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 where are you at? Oh, I'm very much a ten. Yeah. Very much a God. Where, where people would probably, where hardcore Christians who take the Bible literally would probably not necessarily think my definition of God completely matched theirs. Yeah. Where most mainstream Christians and Catholics would completely accept my definition of God. Yeah, I'm one of them. I'm, I'm on there with uh, you. Good stuff, man. Okay, a lot of my, um, I would say 90% of my listeners that, that tune into this podcast show know you from the hit TV show Ancient Aliens. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm all over that show. In fact, there's a marathon on it today. I've been watching some of them. Um, and a new episode just got filmed. I mean, a new, se- a new season. That's that's fantastic. I was going to ask you that if, if we're going to keep yep. going with some new stuff. We got one more. We got at least one more season because I filmed it about three weeks ago. For it. That's good news. Very good news. Yeah. Um, are you enjoying that? It seems like you you do you do even though you're kind of the you're kind of the skeptic on there. But there's a, but there's a, but there's a real there's a real reason to have you on that show though. No, there is, and I think this is interesting. It is one place that kind of surprised me. Um, you know, I, I get a little bit of email for being on the show. It's interesting. Luckily, not a ton, because then I'd be like, have to change my email account. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but what's 
Okay. That's great. Um, which I think is great. But everyone who recognizes me, everyone who emails me, for the most part, it's fun. Really understands why I want to be on that show. Mm -hmm. It's because it's a place that a lot of people watch, and I get they let me do real science. Yep. Now, the rest of the stuff. First of all, I'm not an archaeologist, but but second, I understand there's some pretty hokey stuff on there, and there's some pretty wacky stuff. And a lot of people watch the show because they find it fun. Um, some people, you know, think it's a little more serious. Take it more seriously. That's fine too. As a official scientific position, I have to at the end of the day say we don't know 100% what happened, you know, mm -hmm. a thousand years ago, whatever it was. Um, we just have our ideas and our good evidence and things we can measure. Um, and I'm much more interested in bringing the science to it, and people, I think, get that. Um, the people who seem to get it the least, which I find interesting, are what I would call the really strong skeptics um, who wonder why I would be on a show like that. And I think uh. they don't really understand, from my perspective, what a great opportunity for science outreach that show is. Mm -hmm. I agree. It's got a growing audience, a very big audience that I, that I know of. And very big audience. There needs to be a check. Even, go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. You go ahead, sir. Well, I, I've even been brave and I start actually, I've gone to a UFO conference. Oh, nice. Nice. You know. Yeah, that, that's good. You know, I, I just think there needs to be a checks, a checks and balances thing. Um, uh, I think that's kind of what you do um, yeah. on that show. Now, let me ask you this. Um, since you've been on this show, has there been anything that, that you've dis discovered through either research or things you've, you've seen on this show that inches you a little bit closer to maybe there is a little something to, to some past um, UFO landings here? You know, to be honest, not. I have to be honest. I yeah, of course. I've always sort of had this view, and I think it's, it's, kind of, it's two sides to this. Being on the show has just reaffirmed for me um, the amazing things that humans can do. I mean, we're we're pretty darn smart people. Yeah. <laughs> and we're pretty ingenious. And one of the things that is, is interesting, I mean, being a physics professor and doing experiments, I work a lot with machinists because we have to design our apparatus. And usually what I want to do, you can't buy off the shelf. You have right. to build yourself. And I've always been impressed that you know, I think I've come up with something totally impossible and complicated to build. You go down, and the machine is just like, oh, yeah, you do this, 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 and then we get it built. <laughs> because humans have been designing and building things for so long, and there's this vast knowledge we have, and we're very creative, and we can do that. So for me, that's the exciting part of, like, looking at this and being involved, because I'm not an archaeologist. It's kind of my way to find out about some of this cool stuff. Right, right. Then the flip side of it is... Um, I think the other end is even more exciting. Astronomy, we are finally have the tools and the abilities to find um, Earth-like planets out there. Yeah, exactly. And to actually start measuring things. And I think it's much more likely that we will find life elsewhere in the universe. And it'll be, you know, sort of... There's no reason to assume that it could have developed much faster than we could, in mm -hmm. my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this is just speculation, but I think it's a much more likely scenario that there's other places out there, you know, with plus or minus 100,000 years, something like that, are developing kind of like we are, and at some point, the two of us will catch up and get in contact. Mm -hmm. You know, I, that, that, that segues me into right into the next question 
um, because recently I was it was announced. I read. I'm not sure if NASA announced this or somebody else, but it definitely is legit. Um, the article I read, I think maybe on space.com maybe, um, they're talking about, they feel relatively confident that within the next decade or two, and maybe as quick as that, we may be able to detect life on another, on another world outside oh, of Oh, yeah, definitely, because the key to that is, I mean, it'll be an indirect detection of life. Yeah, yeah. Um, because, you know, but the key to that is being able to measure the atmosphere of these mm-hmm. planets that are smaller and closer to the sun's and it used to be really hard to do because of they were where they are. But the, the telescope technology um, and just the, the, the data processing that computers give us um, is really incredible. And I don't know if they're really doing this for planets yet, but a lot of what's happening with astronomy is, you know, they're sort of crowdsourcing it, right? The problem with astronomy is we get a ton of data and you need to actually have stuff done to analyze it. But there's so many amateur astronomers who love this stuff who will run programs on their computer or do things and, and just get the data crunched. Mm-hmm. You know, I was thinking about this earlier. Um, uh, first, do you, do you believe that, that it more than likely was some kind of a huge, massive meteor impact that wiped out the dinosaurs? You know, I have to admit, that's one of those things, like when the ancient alien people ask me, I say, well, that's not really physics, so I'm not sure, but I, I think I do. I yeah. think that, that's a very convincing argument to me. There seems to be a lot of evidence for that. Um, there, there, it's also completely possible that there were a bunch of other factors environmentally that came in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as we know, the Earth goes through various cycles of stuff, and, and the dinosaurs being kind of fundamentally, a lot of them, you know, you look at how they evolved in the direction they went, and I think it was a delicate balance of whether or not they would ultimately survive, given mm-hmm. their size and other features that went with it. Um, yeah. And mammals are, are, are much more adaptable, it seems to me. You know, and the reason why I brought that up was one of the theories is that, the, you know, the dinosaurs, they... they you know, they reigned supreme on Earth for for a long time, and then boom, the theory is the meteor hits, it cools the atmosphere, clouds the skies, and kills off plant life, which, of course, that impacts the, you know, the whole food chain, and then after a while, everything dies. So I was, I was thinking about that, and like going back to what we were just talking about with, you know, possibly within two decades we'll be able to detect some some, some life out there. What's the odds, though? What are the odds that that life, like, you know, if, I guess what I'm saying is, if the if the meteor theory is true, what if the meteor never hit? Because one of the th- theories is is that because it hit, that that's what created the opportunity for humans to reign supreme here on Earth. Right. Um, so there might be a lot of planets out there that do have life, but just never evolved to where we are. There's just dinosaur that's planets out there. True. So the question really comes down to, this is something like that we study a lot in, in my field, and this is going to sound like a weird comparison, but if you take a thin dish of oil mm-hmm. and you heat it from below and you don't heat it that much, basically the oil just conducts the heat and it all gets a little warmer and nothing weird happens. If you turn the heat up above a critical value, the fluid starts to convect and make little rolls. The hot fluid rises, it cools off, and then it goes down. So you get these circulations, and they self-organize into hexagonal patterns. 
nothing, you don't, you don't impose that anywhere. It's a complex, nonlinear system is what we call it. Mm -hmm. And you just, in a certain parameter range, you always get hexagons no matter what you do. Now, obviously, intelligence is much more complicated than hexagons. Yeah, right, exactly. But what's interesting is I think people have always focused on life and intelligence as a biology question and all the little details that have to happen to make it go into place. But if I think about my hexagons, if I think about it from this detailed molecule perspective, I'm never going to understand how I got hexagons because all the molecules are moving randomly. And the odds of random motion to lead to hexagons is like zero. Mm. It's, you have to look at it as a bigger system and understand that, oh no, there's this parameters, there's a set of conditions that always lead to hexagons. So I think the real question that we're going to start turning to in science is, is there this global set of parameters? Like if you have a planet that's a certain size, a certain distance from the sun with a certain input of energy, you just automatically get life. And maybe there's another set that you automatically not only get life, you get intelligence. And the details of exactly how you get it and what intelligence can vary a little bit from run to run. When you do this with your oil, you don't always get the exact set of hexagons. They're not always in the same place, but you always get hexagons. So maybe without an asteroid, the dinosaurs would have ended up intelligent. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. you know, maybe it's just a matter of the time, because again, in this by this analogy of the hexagons, you know, the time it takes to go from plain water to hexagons, it can also vary depending on the viscosity of your fluid and what you use. So it, it may be that it always takes roughly a certain amount of time on average, plus or minus a little bit. But given a certain set of initial conditions, you always end up with life. And given a difference that you always end up with life that is intelligent. Right now, the system is just too complicated from a science point of view to ask, you know, is that really true? Mm -hmm. But I think that's the right science question. And then, as a physicist, you know, the detail of the asteroid or not the asteroid is less relevant because it's this general set of conditions that's giving it to you. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. And then the asteroid determines whether it's the people that end up intelligent or the, you know, the Tyrannosaurus Rex. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, Which would be scary. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, a very smart T-Rex. Um, yeah, that would be a bad deal, probably. Yeah. Um, let's just play make-believe for a second here. and sure. Let's say a couple, let's say 70 years from now, um, we, we do detect some life. Do you believe that if... Let's just say SETI, you know, because I'm sure SETI's following this really close, and I'm I'm guessing if as this technology gets better, it definitely narrows the window because it used to be they were just blindly looking up in the sky trying to listen for exactly. things. Now they can pinpoint, you know, if they find Goldilocks planets, they can really, you know, they can put their crosshairs right in there. Um, exactly. do, do you believe? That and this is a hypothetical, but let's say they 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 do find something and and we're like, uh oh, and we actually hear, and we hear things that are that are pretty we're pretty sure it's, it's, it's intelligent life now. Do you believe that would that would um, speed up or maybe get more money um, to NASA and to some of these other space agencies? Um, and I oh, I think without a doubt, and I think one of the things that that would immediately do is really help commercialize the space effort. Yes, like SpaceX and them, and them? Yeah, because really, I mean, I've often wondered this. I'm like, you know, if, if, if the, now, admittedly, Columbus got his money basically through government funding from the King and Queen of Spain, mm -hmm. but it, 
if we relied on government agencies to have um, had the Europeans get over to North America, I'm not sure it would have happened as efficiently as it did. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. Part, you know, partly because governments rightfully, and, and this is not a negative on sort of government bureaucracy, it's more a statement that, you know, the governments are dealing with the people's money and they have to be conservative. Right. They have to, they have to be careful of the risks. They have to worry about these things. In a weird way, as a businessman, you, you can be a little more risk-taking because it's your money. Yeah. Yeah. And, and some of these things really get accelerated when you're willing to take risks. You know? Now, because you know, a lot of that exploration happened when companies realized we can make money, so they started sending a you know, large number of ships. Yeah, a few sunk. They lost some cargo. I mean, it sounds kind of callous, but, you know, they were motivated by making the money so they could take those more risks. How far away do you think we are? You mentioned before about how smart the human species is. And, um, and let's say, let's play, make believe again, we do find some, some, we hear intelligent life, we pinpoint, aim all of our telescopes, and we're like, yeah, that's definitely some neighbors now. We have some, we have some neighbors. How long do you think it would take us to develop the, 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 the technology to get there? I mean, obviously the universe is so huge. Um, do you believe warp speed would be something, you know, in the next hundred years or so? I think that's the big open science question. Yeah. You know, because we could figure out basically using special relativity, which is the you know, first theory Einstein came up with. We know that the faster you travel, the slower time goes. Yep. And so we, I think, you know, this is this is a technological challenge, not a fundamental science challenge. And technology, we're very good at. And if we had a clear motivation, we could solve the problem of traveling at very high speeds, slowing down time for the people on the ship, getting a fairly livable environment, and actually sending out ships that made it places. Now, those people, you know, by the time they got there, thousands of years would pass here. So it's exactly. not practical space travel that we would like, but it's, it's doable. I think the bigger question is, like you mentioned, warp speed. We know some very, very iffy theoretical ideas that come out of general relativity. We know you can bend space and bend time. We also know that our best understanding of it is it takes a lot of energy and we wouldn't really know how to do it. Mm -hmm. um, we also know that we don't have a full theory of quantum mechanics and gravity yet. So there is a there's this big unknown, and, and you can, there's some interesting books. There's a nice, fun one, The Physics of Star Trek, that talks about how you might imagine an actual warp drive in bending space. Um, and, you know, as I follow it, it's not the field I do research in, but I try and follow it a little bit, you know, and it seems to go back and forth between thinking that there are actual reasons to believe it's impossible to, no, we're still not sure, it might be a way to do it. And then I come in with my completely non-scientific point of view. It's clearly possible, or there's a lot of wasted space out there. Exactly. Now, do you, do you believe there's, there would be a way uh, we can design something that can communicate with another planet? a lot quicker than we can design something to get there, of course. But what about coming up with a way to say hello? Yeah, you know, I think it's funny. I, and I'd have to think about this a little bit more, but ironically, I think, you know, communicating at faster than the speed of light seems to be much harder to figure out than thinking about warping space and traveling faster than yeah. the light. Right. Um, so we can certainly figure out a way. Communicating at the speed of light is an easy thing to figure out, and we just know it takes a long time. Now, the nice thing is, 
you know, there are things, you know, they're, they're light years away, but, you know, we can at least send messages and future generations and we can keep track. Um, I think there, you know, there's, there's just some interesting questions in, in, in that whole area of quantum mechanics and general relativity. We don't know yet what really will emerge, and that's where I think, I mean, I'm a science fiction buff, both science fiction fantasy I grew up with, and it always amazes me, you know, the stuff people wrote about, like going back to Jules Verne, that everybody thought was crazy, and then we, we actually invented. Yeah. Um, and it just, you know, we, since there is a gap in our understanding of the laws of physics, it gives me hope that we'll be able to figure something out that fits in there. Absolutely. Yeah, there's some Star Trek stuff that we've come up with now, too. Um, yeah, I mean, we all got our communicators, right? You walk yeah. around with your cell phone. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what I love that. Apparently, the flip style of it went out of style real fast. Yeah, man. Kirk needs to get, get some more, some updated gear. He's got that little flip phone exactly. thing. Absolutely. Now, well, Doctor, I tell you what, it's always a pleasure having you on board. I always enjoy oh. these chats, man. Fun doing this. Absolutely. When the book actually comes out, I'll give you an email or call and yeah. we can do it again. Oh, no doubt. We'll get, we'll get you back on, we'll plug the book, and uh, we'll, we'll recap the uh, fascinating fight, see how we're doing with that. And um, Ancient Aliens, we'll do, we'll do it all, man. So, hey, before I let you go, though, before, before I let you go, tell, tell the uh, listeners where they can find you on Twitter and Facebook and, and, and any other. Right. So, on Facebook, it's Prof Denon Michael, P-R-O-F Denon, D-E-N-N-I-N, Michael, um, all one word. And then on Twitter, it's just Denon Michael. Um, at Denon Michael. And so they can follow me there, and then there's all the links to the fascinating.